the biggest concept to understand is that this is publicly developed and owned housing for middle income and working class people. So all Californians are able to live in this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a little about the California social housing bill and California social housing in general with assembly member Alex Lee and Daryl Owens. Why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Daryl Owens. I work on housing policy with East Bay for Everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex Lee, State Assembly Member for District 24. And where's that, Alex? District 24 is beautiful northern Santa Clara County and southern Alameda County, so right there in the Bay Area. We're basically best friends and neighbors. <laughs> right across the Bay from one another. And I guess let's just start it off with like the real basics. Alex, what is social housing? Why are there so many people who are interested in it? Why should we care about it? Big picture before we dive into all the nerdy, gruesome details. Well, social housing is the belief that we as a state can get into the business of building housing for middle and low income people and all Californians. And it's an exciting way to deliver more affordable housing across the state. And that one in which we have more say in too. So it gets the best of both worlds, a lot more housing and housing that you have a say in. And Daryl, nerd us out a little bit more. Why do you think it's like the it topic right now in California? Well, it's one of many topics, but it's a big one because obviously the state is seeing a huge decline in its low and middle income households. And the answer to this abroad has been a public sector developer that sort of creates a collective class interest in housing. And that's one of the great things about a public housing developer building what we call social housing is that everyone's invested in sort of public housing. And this is a really great model. This is something that's going to be very key as well, since we're going through a whole variety of economic issues that can impair privately financed housing, in addition to building up against nonprofit housing, which is often dependent on tax credits and also tends to reduce its production and downturn. So this is a very good counter cynical strategy. And yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that Lee is introducing it along with other legislators who are sort of circling around this topic and have sponsored or gone on with the bill. Yeah. And last year we had, you know, sort of V1 of a social housing bill. And I got to say it went further than I thought it would. And now we've got, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, we were big supporters and it's true. I was like, oh, this is going to be really fun and it'll die really quickly. But it went further than I thought it would. And we now have, I mean, you've got a bunch of co-sponsors. We've got other chatter in the legislature. Like, I, why do we think that this is gaining so much steam right now? Well, yeah, I think it's gaining a lot of traction is because the material housing crisis is so pressing in our face. You know, it's becoming more and more unaffordable to live, especially in places like my district. But I think more and more legislators and stakeholders who Look, and even with the first social housing bill we did last year, we had public sector unions, education unions, environmentalists, like people that you don't usually see on the roster of housing bills getting together on this is because we need more approaches to build, 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 and also get more people housed. And social housing is a very, it's a proven model across the world, right? We always talk about Austria, we talk about Singapore, we talk about other places, but people are looking for solutions. And that's what's exciting people. And yeah, I mean, AB 2053, the first version of the bill, it got off the assembly floor into the Senate. 
And that was definitely when a lot of people, you know, in the beginning were doubting us, right? It's a big transformative shift in how we approach our housing crisis and housing in general. Unfortunately, not super unique and new to our European and Asian counterparts, but it is something new for our area. And when you do something transformative and paradigm changing like this, people are, have a lot of doubts, right? And they didn't think that we'd get through our first committee. We got it out of housing committee. People couldn't think we'd get out of ropes. We got out of ropes. And people couldn't think we'd get it out of the assembly. We did. And I think this year we're going to have even more momentum and hopefully carry it even further. I mean, one of the big things I saw was that then you guys did this big, and by you guys, I mean, a bunch of assembly people went out and actually traveled in Vienna and, and did a kind of tour looking at European social housing. I, we were all extremely jealous. I was like, how do I get on that trip? But, but tell us more about, I mean, I think this speaks to the kind of changing conversation. I mean, obviously things, the conversation that you're having with other legislators about this is, is, is different. Like every week, it feels like. Yeah. It's the first time I've ever been to Austria. I've only read things about it. So it's really cool. I went on two trips back to back. One was a California one where senators and assembly members, we went to Austria and Vienna and checked things out. And then the week after that, I went with my good friend, Senator Stanley Chang of Hawaii, and he led an interstate delegation. So it was like multiple states. So that was really amazing to do. And I think it was especially helpful for some legislators who are more on the fence about it. Like they're interested, but they have like no real solid concept of publicly developed housing and social housing. And I think for a lot of people, it made it very real. And I think it grounded it also in the historical context of Red Vienna and all the accomplishments they were able to do in the 19 teens in the 1920s, I think really, I think, shaped a lot of people's perspective for the better. I think it was really good. And actually, Assemblymember Chris Ward was also on the trip with me. So it was really fun to be able to do that together. I think this is where, you know, it's, it's such a hard pivot from the high level, we should have a government agency that builds housing to once you start thinking about implementation, it gets really complicated really quickly. We've got different ideas about what kinds of people, what income brackets should live in the housing. We've got different ideas about cross-subsidization and, and funding from outside government agencies. We, I mean, it's really easy to like, kind of be like, well, I like this kind of social housing, not that kind of social, you know, people debate this and it gets so nerdy so fast. What do you think is the most important thing for people to kind of understand as they're getting their toes in the water of social housing? Yeah, I mean, the biggest concept to understand is that this is publicly developed and owned housing for middle income and working class people. So all Californians are able to live in this. That's kind of a broad conceptual thing, right? But I think grounding it kind of in the story of Vienna, I was actually visiting, they have a museum about the history of Red Vienna and social housing as it relates to it in the in Karl Markov, right? one of the first social housing places that was built. And they had this really amazing poster from the party back then, like the, the governing party. I should tweet about it one day, actually. I took mm -hmm. a picture of it, but it was like this poster that essentially was like a, a guy gesturing or, you know, kind of in that Art Deco style, gesturing to like a pile of small housing where it said, this is what we promised. And then the medium sized pile of housing says, this is what we delivered. And then a giant pile of housing says, this is what we'll do. And you have to remember too, in the context of for my historical social housing nerds is that. The city of Vienna at the time, after it was, you know, the capital of an entire empire that just lost a world war and completely shattered its empire. It's like the equivalency. And I was really like 
what is it like really institutionalizing me or really the point was made to me is like imagine if like we as the united states just like lost world war three and then the entire country split into 50, 50 states is like the idea that DC could then suddenly have to embark on this when they had 30,000 unhoused people. And they just said, the party just like, you know what, we're going to set up a housing developer or an entity to build housing. And we're just going to do it. We're just going to go and make housing for everyone as part of a larger program. But that's the first step, right? This bill, what represents in the bill that I'm doing is the first step. You have to create the public developer to be able to create social housing. And that's the first step where before all the other things, like how, how every apartment's get painted, who lives where, and all these little things that everyone, of course, is so invested in. But the very first most important step is to doing the how. And how we do it is get a public interest developer or public developer. Daryl, I'm just going to assume you have a lot of things to riff off of in response. <laughs> I, I mean, not necessarily. I mean, like, I, I think that what Alex said here is key, though. This is just a first step. This is one of many steps. Not everything about the future of public housing in California is dependent on this one bill. Um, There are many people and organizations and groups and even legislation that will help empower publicly built housing in the state of California. This is just sort of the institutional like skeleton or core of an agency that would build it. And I think that that's really good. I think that this is something that needs to be done. And yeah, I I could just reiterate everything Alex said, but I think he nailed it down pretty well. I think to that point too, is like, you know, not everything is done in one fell swoop. It's packages Mm -hmm. of bills or packages of bills over time. And sometimes there's even small tweaks that are kind of done on the radar. I know everyone here are, are housing experts and nerds of their own. And we also know sometimes we have to do things a little more quietly, right? Because some people are resistant to change and all these things come in time or in separate pieces too. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that context though, because I, so just where I am right now, my family has a beach house in a little town in Cayucas, California. And, you know, I'm of course seeing Krista Jeffries over with UMB Slow and, you know, going down the coast of California, you, you do see homelessness more and more and more and more. And the crisis level that it feels like the entire state, you know, as we enter into recession and and mass layoffs, you know, I do think that big things can happen in these moments of crisis where people, we've had this kind of like slow building housing shortage for so long that people refer to as a crisis, but we had, we were sort of pointing at statistics and, and everyone would say, oh, crisis, it's a crisis, it's a crisis. And yet still the sort of proposals were just not at scale with the level of crisis that it was. And I do wonder if sort of this, if, if we are heading into a downturn, does that help open up the conversation about much bolder and more creative action? Because we're, it's not dissimilar to where things were post-World War with especially the quantity of people who need to be housed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always bring it back to the Red Vienna because a lot of fans of social housing bring it back to the heyday. And it's like we have to appreciate the context of the crisis, right, where it's like the entire country as they know it is shattered. So many people are out of work. So many people are unhoused. And they, in the short span of less than a decade, were able to accomplish so much. And it really is, right? We are really on the precipice of huge income inequality, vast people losing their homes or having to move out of the state. Or, you know, even worse. And we have all these crises and metrics we're happening right now is 
And especially even now, especially with economic downturn, where people, like you said, are being laid off, are losing their jobs, and even with the flight, kind of the flightiness of capital, right? For a large part, too, which is kind of scary for us in the housing world, is a lot of our housing is dependent on the private market and private investors. And when the private investors start, you know, not being as eager about propping up the places to be built, that's jobs being laid off, that's projects being delayed, and that only worsens every other problem. If we had a public developer, like what we're trying to do, we could work in a countercyclical measure, which means we can just keep building because the people demand it, not just because the investors are scared off, right? We do this with our school bonds, we do this with public works. Like we don't stop building public facilities, public infrastructure if the private investors are scared off. We do it because the people need it. And this is the same way we're getting closer with housing as infrastructure. So I think there's a lot of material like push for it right now and why more people are going to see this is an urgent solution but i don't want us to get to true post-world war one vienna days but i just <laughs> you know keep reminding us about the context in which like literally had to reinvent a republic from an empire and they could do in 10 you know less than 10 years they accomplished it so i hope that where we are which is not as bad we can do this within a couple of years too and i also think that you know we talk about the sort of like counter cyclical thing where like if private funding dries up for market housing that therefore we're going to be kind of screwed and we saw that with the recession we also saw that temporarily with the pandemic and not only does that also affect to be clear the existing nonprofit housing which is funded through tax credits mm-hmm. so the way right. we fund housing in California what we fund housing in the United States is we used to build a lot of public housing. Actually, the funny thing is we always run to Vienna, but not only are there actually a lot of social housing models all over the world. Some of my favorites are in Japan, but also there is the United States that used to fund public housing. Now, it wasn't always great. A lot of it was racially segregated. But if you look at the public housing, especially from the like Roosevelt era, it was a largely low and middle income housing complexes that were being built as part of the New Deal. And the problem is that once World War II, and then also, it, I mean, it ramped up even more during World War II because developers just weren't building any housing at all due to the war effort. So the state had to come in and build lots of housing. And then after World War II ended, there was a very strong ideological shift towards a capitalist structure in which public housing was really just something that should only be seen as like a welfare service. And by that point, the government was actively pushing people into the private market with competitive mortgages and a lot of race-based discrimination as well. So it's not like it's something that's unheard of or uncommon here. And since then, we built a lot of public housing, but it was income segregated. And that lasted up until about Nixon, who then put a cap on public housing spending. And since then, public housing had been in serious decline. And what happened is when that that went through and then Reagan got into office and wanted to go with the whole demand side solution to low income housing issues, which was by introducing vouchers. And that was insufficient. So by the 1990s during the sort of neoliberal era, the answer became to incentivize private builders to build affordable housing primarily through what we call now tax credits. And so that is the way the majority of our low-income housing gets built in the state is through nonprofits. Now, nonprofits do a really good job building low-income housing, but it does come with a more complicated structure, and it is just usually focused on tax credit-rewarded public fund finance housing. So the social housing agency would sort of restore the role of the public sector in building housing, um, which I think is really good, and also 
it's not just a hypothetical issue of private builders not being interested. We see plenty of places all throughout California. A really great example I point to is like Fresno, where there's intense demand, especially among the agricultural industry. And you see this throughout the entire Central Valley for housing, especially for farm workers. And there's just like no developer interest at all because there's not as many developers as there were before since the Great Recession. And there's not as many people in the construction industry as there were before the Great Recession. So a lot of developers are focused in high income, high, high rent regions. And you have a lot of areas that have this huge housing deficit and there's just no private interest, even with favorable land use. So this is one of the reasons why you need a public developer to get in the game. Well, I think that pivots us really nicely to this kind of probably the number one question that gets asked about social housing when it gets proposed. You know, though California is quite blue, there is a strong anti-tax streak to this Mm -hmm. state, despite our reputation as being a high-tax state. You know, a lot of the critiques I see from people saying, like, who's going to pay for this? And, you know, assembly member, get as nerdy as you want about funding structures and cross-subsidization and all those other ideas, but who is going to pay for this? Look, and I, you bring up such a great point about even blue California. Look, this is the, the fundamental biggest opponent to the idea of social housing are the people who have bought into, like Daryl just laid out the history of, of housing policy in America, but people have bought into this Reagan notion that government is the problem. We have Democrats and Republicans who just believe that government can never be a solution, that private capital and private markets and private actors will always be the cure to everything. And that is unfortunately true. That's a large part in why our bill stalled in its, its last Senate committee is because we had differences of opinion about the power of government and how much it should it be able to do rather than li- relying on the you know, private actors. That's a real, real problem. But you know how we're going to pay for this is it's broken up in different steps, right? You obviously want to differentiate between the operating expenses for the developer itself and then the capital expense. The capital expense, which is obviously all your money to build the homes, is going to be the most expensive part. In our bill, even in the last version, it never precluded the developer from seeking out other state sources of money or loans or whatever. Just like how our universities, when they go about build new buildings or do other things like that, they can also seek out assistance, right? They can seek out financial assistance. But one really appealing aspect of social housing and that one I really champion too is this concept of cross-subsidization or you call rent solidarity. What I would like the easiest way to talk about it is like it's wealth redistribution on a neighborhood level. The idea that person who makes slightly more than you your neighbor is able to help subsidize your unit next door like that's cross-subsidization that's what rent solidarity is about it's wealth redistribution on a smaller scale no pass-throughs to administrative bureaucracies and doing all this stuff that is a core principle of it because if a community can be strong and independent on its own it won't ever be subject to being cutting off in the future right say a much more conservative california government comes along in the 2040s or something and they're they're want to repeat the Reagan and Nixon era and they're like, no more, you know, and they really radically change it. We don't want to have that, right? You want to have that kind of strength in the, in a community level. So that's really important. But, you know, also at the same time, I have never been shy about making those who owe pay more, right? Like the week before social housing, 
I reintroduced with also another coalition, our wealth tax. It's like the with seven other states, a tax on billionaires, and that would generate over $22 billion going to general fund. That's money that can go to our schools, housing, everything, right? So there are lots of ways in which we can fund these things. But I think in the core principle, that, that cross-subsidization is so important because it gives not just, say, neighborhood is is needing a, a stream of revenue from government but it's like a neighborhood self-reliant ecosystem and then we add in more money and add in more from the outside that's kind of the goal of it in my mind but cross-subsidization has just so much benefit and able to do that direct you know redistribution of resources and you know it's worth noting that already in our subsidized affordable housing not everybody is paying the same like people, I think something people yeah. don't necessarily know in our subsidized affordable housing, people are paying rent. You know, I think that's something they think that the people who live in that housing are, are getting a completely quote free ride. And in fact, that's a myth that a lot of people are paying about 30% of their income. And so replicating that in a social housing model with, with higher income people, middle income people as part of that kind of layer cake of different kinds of people living in the building. I mean, it's, it's really appealing for integration, for, you know, creating a sort of whole community as you're talking about, and it helps make the sort of perpetual math work. And it also helps avoid, I mean, to me, the part that's the real sort of tragedy when we look back at America's history of what we were calling public housing is that there was this disinvestment because okay. people didn't feel attached to it. They didn't feel like people like them lived in it. And so they were really willing to pull up the ladder of opportunity to take away all of that money. And, you know, one thing that I think is really appealing about a lot of the social housing models is that by getting very low income people and middle income and upper middle income people all living in a building together is that you have this kind of like group investment in it and everybody can see the benefits. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, Singapore famously used their social housing program as also a instrument of social integration. I think there's a lot of benefits, obviously, having people of all backgrounds and income levels living together. And we don't want, you know, the wealthy enclaves to continue just be those gated enclaves continually. We want to give people or working class backgrounds to also have the ability to live in those great neighborhoods and great places. And that's what we want to try to do is why it's so important to have that concept of socioeconomic inclusion, right? I do want to dive a little bit into the sort of politics and who we see as people who are, you know, potential allies in this. Why is it so hard to get these kinds of things right now across the finish line? And where do you see things changing? I mean, I got to say, there's a lot more co-authors on, you know, a new social housing bill. There's a lot more chatter in general in the legislature about getting something across the finish line. The, the gossip is good. Oh, yeah. I mean, the work that a lot of people on this call helped to push the bill as far as it did made this attempt even more I don't know, prolific or taken seriously, you know, because if we, you know, a lot of times we can shoot for the moon and push for big ideas. And if it doesn't go very far, they're not taking it seriously. But now they're like, oh, shoot, the social housing bill's back. Like I got co-authors pretty quickly for this one and we had to do it pretty, and it was relatively quick too. So we, yeah, people take this issue a lot more seriously and the coalition will grow again because it was seen as a, such a viable effort. And it's not every day that we could see a effort to basically get the government back into the business of providing housing. And that's a you know big deal. Go this far. 
So I think people are excited for it. It's definitely gotten more attention from it. And I think when we do things that are efforts with other states, I think that also helps leverage the attention too. But I think, you know, and again, like I always repeat this, the biggest enemy of this effort are people that really fundamentally do not want to see this successful. When the realtors came out against it, they basically painted a vision of where the government has so many housing, so much <laughs> housing, and so many working people live in it, it would be a nightmare. You know, like, it's so interesting when you read those opposition letters, like from NIMBY groups and stuff, that it's like saying how, just saying how powerful it could be, right? And I think that speaks to the vision, like, you can just look at those op letters, opposition, but we'll still have you know, those people out there who are opposing to it for such, such reasons, but our coalition is going to get stronger and bigger. In the opposition, my favorite opposition was someone who was fear-mongering that a public housing agency would be able to ignore local zoning. And I was like, do not threaten me with a good time. That is, <laughs> and obviously the MV, I, I stayed quiet on that. I was like, no, they will not be able to sad face. But wouldn't it be great? Yeah, I will. But yes, I think this fear mongering by people who actually don't want anything to happen is the number one source of opposition. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, though, there, this is very early in the legislative season. So I'm sure a lot more bills will be introduced that is tangentially related to this. I don't think Lee's bill actually talks about land use, though it is intent language so far. But yeah, I mean, this is a, this is definitely a good start. It's going to take a big coalition to get it over the finish line. And I don't believe that appealing to people who are skeptical about public housing is necessarily that hard. I just think that they, they tend to have a very narrow idea of public housing. A lot of these people are just old. And, and yeah, a lot of them are bigoted, unfortunately. But I think a lot of people can be brought on board with publicly financed housing. Yeah, I mean, I, that's certainly been my experience. Although, you know, I do worry when we think about the, the sort of opposition to it and how easy it is to rally people from a place of fear. You know, I think we have to be, as, as a pro-housing movement, we always have to be thinking about how do we come back that is often not based in fact, fears. And the fears people have about social housing, about public housing, I mean, it's all of the everyday fears about people moving into their backyard. And then they add on these like extra layers of, uh, <laughs> of fears that are just kind of, you know, I mean, I feel like sometimes as a pro-housing activist, you're like, you got to like be part therapist to like talk people through. I mean, especially like people who are family friends and whatnot, where I'm like being like, oh, you know, like that's not actually true. You know, these are people who like work jobs just like you. And I mean, Alex, you must get the craziest mail. Well, I mean, the good news, though, is that, like, since the development of LIHTC, LIHTC's been pretty good at having pretty sustainable low-income housing, and it has not led to, like, people don't even know what the incomes are of people in certain buildings, or if they do find out, they find out that there's no stigma attached with being low-income at all. So, I mean, LIHTC's done a pretty good job at that. Building management does a pretty good job. It's it's kind of an outdated fear among, like, older people who, like, have no experience living next to low-income housing or who don't know that they're living next to low-income housing. I mean, that's the other thing that I sort of, the, the, the wonderful and then also kind of the hard thing about a lot of our LIHTC housing is that it's invisible. And to Daryl's point too, it's that fear of, you know, the unknown or this, this image. But I, I point to why the opposition letters and this paint, this, this opposition argument that they paint is so important is because I think there's also 
as a pro housing movement, there's something powerful to be said about painting a picture, right? Painting a vision. While we as nerdy people get in the lost in the weeds a lot of times about what this policy sounds like and what this will this will do, um, a lot of our opponents and people are very good at painting a picture of like in their minds a dystopia, right? But if we think about like what it could look like, right? And that's why these trips like going to Austria or Singapore or even any European or Asian country a lot of times in Japan is to show them like it can look like this, it can look like that, but it doesn't have to look like this nightmare that you're painting in your mind because even while I'll say it's effective to have other legislatures go touch and feel and see for themselves is like it works. People are happy and it's not some dystopia nightmare that, you know, certain people make it out to be, but it's important when we paint the future, right? When we focus on the big picture is that, you know, we really are in a crisis and not just, we don't, you know, we have a solution that just solves it, but like can get us to even an elevated level where we can have social housing for all. We can have decommodified housing that like makes people happy and makes people proud to live in those areas. Like those things exist in the world, you know, I'm not conjuring out of nowhere. And I think that's why it's like helpful to see them in the modern context, but also remembering you know, it took a lot of work to to get there. And if, you know, if people can pick up the ruins of their empire and rebuild the republic and get the social housing done in, in a time, I think we can at least get some fraction of it. And I just want to say, too, as well, that, like, there's actually quite a lot of really good examples of well-maintained, livable public housing throughout California. Um yeah. I've been posting a lot on Twitter, especially in the last legislative season. I'll do it again, too. Um, usually when people are thinking of like bad public housing, they're thinking of like the ones that are bad stick out because of severe disinvestment. Many of them, if almost all of them, not even located in California, like they're usually talking about like Cabrini Greens or something. But like there's a lot of just decent public housing, especially built in the later years, like the 70s, the last remnants of public housing in the 70s, like totally fine. People just get afraid of of nonsense. Yeah, and um, most of them are also not the towers. No, and, and there's even examples. I mean, this is the other thing when you're saying like, well, how can an agency, you know, a state agency own housing? And I'm like, you know, in San Francisco, the Presidio has a bunch of housing. And and there are these like so many different kinds of public and private entities that build and maintain housing. We're talking all over California about teacher housing, about school districts building housing. And this is definitely a larger scale version of that. But we, I mean, I think this is, if we're gonna be the state that's capable of doing things, like we're a big wealthy state capable of having a big well-run public agency that can build and maintain housing. I think it's a big, it's a big vision, but it's totally achievable. Yes, we can. And yes, we must believe. (laughs) So Alex, what do you think the hardest question you're getting that you want to answer? The hardest question that I'm getting that I want to answer. I love the Yeah, I don't want you to have you, of course, (laughs) in the corner to answer a question you don't want to answer. Such a good question. Think about it. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, like there's a lot of questions about like, oh, how much will it cost in this area and this this place? All of it is obviously depends, but I really want to make it so that we're charging people basically cost rents, right? Or cost price, right? As much as really break even. We're not trying to make a buck off of people like the private market and stuff. We're really trying to deliver quality homes for people. And I saw this so well. And sorry not to cut off Daryl at the point. You know, you're making a point about obviously a lot of great public housing in America. I just wanted to point out that, you know, a lot of people have in their minds Prude Igo or these towers. But in reality, a lot of public housing in America is also mid-density, right? It's like townhome type looking. 
but it's like not not super tall right to say that point is like in austria even like they really have a really strong sense of like delivering quality product for people that everyone can afford and i want to make sure that's the case in social housing and that's kind of the language we're still looking at right well how do we have the strongest language to ensure that everyone can afford their homes all right josh i'm inviting you to be a speaker my question for alex is how have you seen the changing landscape with the new elections affect your chances like, is there anybody who's been eliminated and replaced with someone else who's much better? <laughs> well, you know, if you look at our co-author list on the Senate side, we I'm very happy to have Senator Caroline Menjivar on board. So that might be someone I think a lot of people are excited about, given the last Senate committee vote. So I'm really excited. I think we have a lot of new members, too, who are very excited about getting new models out there, too. But, you know, Senator Menjivar is one that definitely sticks out, and we need to have more allies in the second house, right? And I got to give a shout out for my assembly member, Matt Haney. Yeah, early co-author. You know, I think one thing that I know we talk a lot about is that how much are we doing subsidization versus from additional funding and how much is this going to compete with the funding that's currently going to affordable housing versus how much do we have the opportunity to bring in new funding? How much do we have the opportunity to do this cross subsidization where we've got higher income people? You know, I, I know you know that there's just like a lot of question marks and it's it's important to kind of leave the door open, but is there anything, you know, as we think about getting stakeholders to sign on to this bill, what are those tough conversations looking like right now? Yeah. And I've always been forthright about it. And even in 2053 is this, our bill to create the public developer never shuts the door on any sort of financing, whether it be further state subsidization, getting its own dedicated revenue stream, or using more traditional methods of loans and finding other financing, right? So it's never shut the door on that. And also to be clear is that cross-subsidization is not at all at odds with further subsidization, with further state money. It's never at odds. They're not mutually exclusive. You can have both simultaneously and it would just make your layer cake of financing for social housing even tastier and even stronger. Like they are not at odds with one another. And I think that's important to stress. And look, this is the ideal method and I'll just be with people is that we do the bill that creates the entity sets out the mission and we enshrine in state law that we yes we want social housing that is a huge step if we can follow that up with a dedicated revenue stream which there are plenty of different revenue streams out there and ideas look i am the author of the mega million and wealth and billionaire wealth tax so you know i take on those battles too so there are plenty of options out there and even like even if i we're successful and we got all of the things we want, the wealth tax and social housing put together. That's more money on the table for all our programs, including social housing. So I think, you know, the things we have, they're not at odds with each other. In fact, they can all complement each other well. I actually have a question for Alex. I have an answer for you, Daryl. Okay. We all know that California is dealing with a deficit right now, and it's resulting in some austerity measures proposed by Gavin in the recent budget. Governor Newsom, how do you <laughs> feel like... Yeah. How do you, how do you, how do we feel in terms of this getting through as far as budget obligations? Is Gavin Newsom receptive towards, you know, doing public housing or does he still have, you know, Jerry Brown brain and no redevelopment? <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is, I think as the refreshing new cycles of ledgers has come in, I've even heard people saying we need to bring redevelopment back. Like there are people who are definitely aching for more and more solutions, even in the new classes of legislators. 
Now, I can't speak to how the governor thinks about things or how he approaches things, but I can tell you that he has already taken one of my bill ideas before and turned into extraordinary session with the oil price stuff. So there is a historical precedent for such a thing. But all that to say is that, you know, we have to show a really strong showing. We have to show the strongest showing possible for a, a governor like Gavin Newsom to take it very, very seriously. He thinks very differently probably than many people in this chat about politics and policy. But he knows that the housing and homelessness crisis is one that he must own whatever stage he's on, the, the state one, the national one. So we are trying to give him an innovative solution something that's really cool and awesome. We can say that California did first, but we really got to push them on it. And that's really important. I mean, it's so hard because so much of California's budgeting is so silly that it ties us to revenue in this way that makes the exact thing we're talking about of counter-cyclical spending, where you want to do bigger public investment during that downtime. I mean, it is such a, such a ridiculously tragic thing that we are thinking about making budget cuts in a recession. That's like exactly the opposite of what we should be doing right now. Um, I don't know if you want to rant about that, but we're going to wrap it up. So last thoughts on like how we're going to reform the entire budget of California and or what are all the incremental steps that we need to do to get social housing across the finish line this year? Yeah, definitely a lot of thoughts about our budgetary situation. I said on budgets and um, well, I mean, Yes, you point out the ridiculous thing about how we could potentially be cutting a lot of programs during recession is really bad. But that's just that's the unfortunate reality of a state still that is very shy about the T word, right? When you have legislatures afraid about the tax measures. But I do think I, I do see a lot of hope in that. Look, the choice between your state government right now is, especially if recessions last longer and get bad, is that we have the conversation about cutting things we like or taxing people and entities that aren't paying what they owe. That's a very simple choice in my mind of which one to go. But even amongst the Democrats and especially Republicans, the lore of cutting things than asking the tough conversations how we fund things is more appealing. And that's what I think our coalitions are good at, right? It's saying like, these are not easy policy conversations, but they must be had. The reason we're in the housing crisis for so many reasons is because we kicked the can down the road for so many decades so when it comes to revenue measures like how do we fund social housing with a steadfast stream how do we do this how do we do this for schools like it's going to be really important that we have these serious conversations and build momentum but the first step you know like the sort of incremental series towards social housing is you need to have the developer we need to lay out the mission very clearly lay out what is understandable for people and one day i want to hear the word social housing come out of governor gavin newsom's mouth and he's going to sign our bill that's what i hope for <laughs> from your lips to god's ears and also remember lee i think has to get to an event yeah i really appreciate everyone i do have to get running i really appreciate the time in this space thanks so much assembly member okay josh han did you have a comment or question assembly member can't answer it but if it's conceptual maybe i can delve oh, into yeah, it hi. i had a question about how last year's ab 2053 made it really far passing the assembly and then getting into the Senate Committee on Governance and Finance, where it ultimately stalled, not because the majority of people on that committee voted no, but because there were a couple of no votes recorded. I was wondering if there were any ideas on how we can change the bill this year or what we can do to persuade the chair of that committee, Senator Caballero, to have a yes vote on this bill this year. 
I mean, I can't speak for what Alex is going to do. It's pretty early in the legislative session. So it's pretty obvious at, at this stage that there's going to be a different strategy. I don't even know if it's so much reintroducing, like maybe calling it AB 2053 2.0 might even be like a misnomer because I think that it seems like from all the co-authors and sort of ideas flooding around that there's going to be a much more powerful approach to it this time. But I can't, I, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see what else happens, especially as the legislative season gets started. But the good news is at least we know who is going to be like opposed or have issues with the public developer. That was something we didn't know going in with AB 2053 the first time. I kind of feel like the first bill was almost like a shot in the dark because you were almost trying to like temperature test who actually would support like public sector construction. Yeah, and to that point, I mean, it was a, a shot in the dark that then went so much further than was predicted at the beginning. I mean, I think that was what was really exciting it also means that, you know, the the people who are going to oppose it are sort of also getting more serious about their opposition now that it becomes more realistic that it might pass. So, you know, both sides of the debate, you know, get more organized with each iteration. Well, the realtors were very aggressive in trying to take out Lee. I've 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 not seen them that aggressive unless it's usually like the rent control campaigns. <laughs> but like that was that was pretty ridiculous. I think that was the worst of the entire state. The amount of money the realtors poured into trying to keep Lee from getting reelected. So it does seem like people are taking like serious positions on this. But you're gonna have to navigate it because the truth is you gotta get through a lot of electeds who don't believe in public housing. Uh okay, thanks, Josh. Shane. Two kind of questions or things I'm concerned about a little bit. One is just thinking about the upfront capital expense of this. Like even if you're talking about cost neutral projects, you've got to put a lot of money down upfront to, you know, acquire the land, to build the housing and, you know, it'll be paid back through rents, but it's going to take decades. And so, you know, where is that going on like the budget ledger when we can't run deficits and, and those kinds of things like, the federal government can or, or even the private sector can in some ways and then the second one is just well, well, kind of wondering if sorry okay sorry go ahead yeah you know, <laughs> i'm with Daryl. you asked a big meaty question one and you're like trying to pivot into question two okay um, i'll just leave it there <laughs> well you can ask my second question was better though <laughs> I, I think the simple answer though is that this is very different i mean i don't i don't know because i'm not lee but it seems to me, based on the intent language of the bill and based on a lot of the energy around publicly financed housing in the legislature, that this is not going to be like some ultra cost revenue neutral legislation. Obviously, it would need to compete for the same funds that LIHTC already does. And the, the ideal answer to that would be to expand the amount of funds that it has. Um, I mean, even the original one wasn't super cost neutral, except for a sort of an excerpt about how it wouldn't take state funding for operational costs. And I think that the idea here is that the cross subsidy would just be much greater in terms of keeping public housing afloat, even against austerity measures. But I certainly don't think that the backbone of like capital costs would be through rents, at least not this early on. I also think it's worth thinking, if you're thinking about the entire state of California, right? We have so many different government agencies that own so much land and frankly, so many parking lots. Like the number of publicly owned parking lots is out of control. And I do think that as we think about what would an agency be capable of 
I think there are these kind of combinations. We've got a huge amount of various agencies that own a lot of land that could be rallied to this. And then we also have, you know, those agencies employ a lot of people who are struggling to live in a lot of communities. And so thinking about maybe the agencies can, you know, build and maintain their land in partnership with a statewide public agency. Like there's just so many different ways to be creative about the concept in general of public sector housing. And then you put on top of that the ability that every city in, in California has what they are freaking out about as these state mandated housing goals. When you start saying that there's a public agency that might be able to actually come in and help you meet those very low and middle income housing goals, you know, it all starts to get a little bit like, oh, there's more possible here that a public agency really can help unlock in our existing resources in California. I also think that we would love to just in general raise more money and spend it on on really public housing and reinvesting in that in California. And I, I do think that, you know, in the 10-year horizon, in the 15-year horizon, there's a real appetite for that, even though it feels kind of impossible in the next like two years, you know, but, but bigger things have happened. It's also worth noting too that um, not only has Lee opted the wealth tax, but we've also attempted to repeal Prop 13 for commercial properties. And I don't think that that effort is done. And also Lee in the last session tried to get rid of the mortgage interest deduction for secondary homes and vacation houses. So I think there's a lot of revenue generating schemes in the legislature, especially considering the deficits we're dealing with right now. All right, Shane, A, do you like our answers to question one? And B, what is your question two? Uh, I do. That, that is a good answer. And I think, yeah, pointing out that there are going to be funds available and those might be the, the, you know, some of the funds that are used for that upfront cost, I think is important, among other things. So I appreciate that. The other one, having just talked to someone who's like an expert on Vienna social housing recently, I really like their model of like the state or the city in this case, acquiring land and then putting it out for proposal where they basically say, here's what we want, give us your best you know, proposal for this and, and different nonprofits compete to build. And I'm just thinking, wondering if that kind of model has been thought about not as a replacement for the public building, but sort of like a complement to it, You know, get some better design in some cases. Also, since it's gonna take time to build up capacity, this could be something that could be maybe getting us housing more quickly in that, you know, as that capacity is built up. So that is the, a big way that housing is getting built in California right now, that a lot of cities will put out requests for proposal, requests for qualifications on land that they've identified and a local nonprofit will put forward proposals. Um, that's the way, you know, a lot of the housing in San Francisco and LA um, and I do think that the kind of the funny part, I mean, California, like such a crazy place. It's like, we'll put out the request for proposal. The nonprofit will apply. And then the nonprofit has to go beg the local zoning administrators and the, get through the planning commission and has to beg to build the project that the city is hiring them to build. That is nuts. And they waste a lot of time and money on that whole process. But it is how we do things right now. I, I, you know, I hope that there's a way to sort of fix the pathologies involved in that as well. 
the thing that I'm actually worried about when we think about getting a public agency is thing like nobody else is worried about this. Don't worry. Like this is not a thing, but right now getting through the permitting process is an aggressive process where the nonprofit right now is like really motivated to get their permits. And so they're like doing a lot of placating people, but they are working the system you know, a thing we haven't really talked about, which I can't wait to like have a social housing agency and be able to debate this because we've already solved so many other problems, but they are going to be arguing with other public agencies about getting their permits to build locally. And this is a big, like, is that going to be easier or harder? You know, how are we going to have to think about the different public agencies fighting to build and another public agency fighting to ask them to not build? I don't know, but hopefully we'll have buy right permitting by then, I guess. It's also, again, just a bill to establish an agency. So it can't do everything. And that unfortunately means, yeah, it can't, this isn't a zoning bill and a land use bill yet. I don't know how it will change, but Permitting never really came up, even in the original 2053. So that might be just something that's addressed in the future. But yeah. Definitely. And I think right now we're in the kind of like getting a bunch of ideas out there. And what eventually comes into this bill, um, Maria actually if, is from Assemblymember Lee's office. I don't know, Maria, if you wanted to add anything. Yeah, thank you. I did. So I just wanted to clarify that we wouldn't be competing for the same funds as, as LIHTC funds, basically. So I just wanted to quickly jump on and add that note. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think this is something when we're thinking about all the different stakeholders in the state legislature, really important potential ally is current nonprofit affordable housing developers who, you know, would love to see public housing in general but are very rationally worried about competition for very limited public dollars right now. So I don't know, Daryl, if you want to add on to that. I mean, I was trying to avoid that topic because that is, that is the truth, right? Like we have a pretty large nonprofit apparatus that builds all of our low-income housing since the neoliberal era of the 1990s when we tried to incentivize it. And don't get me wrong, nonprofits have done a really good job at keeping up the pace. Of course, by definition, a public sector developer will be a lot more efficient in terms of administrative costs, but you know, we don't we don't want to war with like LIHTC developers about what's better. And actually, I think the really good thing is that there is a major upside here for LIHTC developers, which is that administrative control of all these surplus public lands and parking lots we have throughout California, that there's a lot of really good examples of both nonprofit and public housing construction that can happen on public lands. This is actually pretty common in Vienna with their housing authority as well. Usually Vienna land leases properties, and then they'll have like on part of the parcel, a nonprofit developer, and then they'll have the public sector developer. So it's, it's not an unheard of thing. And it actually can really help LIHTC out a lot. But I gotta, we got to make sure LIHTC like understands that. <laughs> So one thing that I wanted to point out is a long-term, long-term good thing, long-range gain, is a lot of these housing elements have a lot of public sites in their housing elements, and having this this HTD thing would actually make these sites become a lot more realistic because you can have commitments saying, hey, within four years, if you don't have a private developer, you have to give it to the public housing unit. So, you know, just having this as an option would actually make a lot more cities become a lot more realistic about what public stuff they actually can develop. I totally agree. I'm just curious about have people been thinking or talking about like the staffing? Because I remember Paul Williams talking about when he talked to like Montgomery County is currently 
building social housing or something similar to it already. And they had a really hard time sort of like recruiting top talent both from nonprofit and private developers because, you know, public sector hiring is so like slow, it doesn't pay super well. And like they really had to rethink a lot of the ways that they hire that make it different from other government hiring to make sure that they had like the top like development real estate talent both from nonprofit and private sector. So I'm curious, like, has there been any discussion or thoughts about how to actually staff this agency properly? You know, I think that mostly falls into the category of things I cannot wait to worry about. It hasn't been a big topic. Except insofar as some people have floated, like, should this agency be folded into another agency? Is there an existing agency? It would make sense to kind of nest it under. And there was some talk about nesting it under HCD, or does that not make sense just because the it does really different things? So it's just because it has housing in the name, does that actually make sense? But I do think that that is something I cannot wait to worry about. Um, Sasha. Hi, um, my name's Sasha. I work for East Bay Housing Organizations, although I'm just speaking for myself. I was sitting in some strategic communications meetings today, and we were talking about big, bold ideas that like challenge the status quo and move the Overton window, and kind of the base building that's necessary behind that. So I'm curious if folks can speak to, you know, as we all know, unfortunately, the housing world in California is incredibly divided, and it's hard to get people on the same page pushing the same message. Are, is there work behind the scenes to do base building on this and particularly is there work being done to make sure that those who are the most cost burdened are being represented in like the discussions around what the bill looks like and if they're going to be represented in this housing i think the short answer there's like sort of the short and the longer answer the short answer is i do know that assembly member alice lee's office is working really hard to do that the longer answer is that i think you're right that there are People get kind of locked into their corners. And I know that last year there, you know, I think that some of the conversations didn't get as far as the assembly member had hoped they would. I think that there is that opportunity there. I mean, you know, it's part of why we're doing this and, and other things to kind of get out there and talk to the people who should see, be able to sort of see this as a real opportunity. But I think that you're right that it's really, there's so much in such a short amount of time, there's a lot of history that we're going to have to sort of hopefully help people find ways to connect, to overcome some of that history in order to agree to agree. Cause I think there is so much opportunity here. Daryl, I know it's an, it's a topic near and dear to your heart. Well, I mean, the the bill just came out, so it's not like everyone is inherently like instantaneously involved, but I do know that the social housing agency has like a ton of people who want to either assist it in a certain way legislatively. I just can't, it's one of those like, it's too early conversations, but yeah, there's like a lot of groups behind the scene that are talking about what they want to see in the bill and how the agency will work out uh, with Lee's office. It's certainly not an insular conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much. I just can't say more than that. Yeah, no worries, obviously. Also, I'm sure just for the folks on the team here, I'm sure you've already done this, but if not, one idea could be to work with the Residents United Network at Housing California to try and invoke some residents. But anyways, thanks for hosting this space. Yeah, there's actually a lot. I know there's a lot of communications with Housing California. Um, That is absolutely happening. I don't know about that specific group, but I do know CA Housing is definitely involved. Awesome. All right. So I think we can wrap it up there. 
Thank you guys so much. Maria, do you have any last things, any calls to action you want to, you know, speaking for the assembly member? I think we covered everything. If people want to submit a letter of support, they can always do that and feel free to reach out to me. I'm on the fact sheet on the website. We have a website, californiasocialhousing.org. We'll be tweeting it out again as well. We do answer the contact us emails and the assembly member's office is getting those as well. So please do reach out and hopefully, and Sasha, if you've got more ideas, anybody who has more ideas about people we should speak to, we would love to get a lot more people excited about this bill. And hopefully, you know, as things get fleshed out, as the meat gets added to the bones over time, it's a great way to get people involved in these conversations about housing. Maybe for the first time. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everyone. Kenneth here, one of the Infill producers. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. Yimby Action is advocating for the policy solutions we need for abundant, affordable housing and inclusive, sustainable communities across the country. If you believe this work is important and valuable, I really want to urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org slash join. Thanks so much.